0: Welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your big brain of a host, Gary, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I am joined by my wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann.
1: Hi, Gary. You sound a little full of yourself right now.
0: Well, my head is just enormous today. Oh, wow. Wow. <clears throat> well, it's filled with so much that's been going on, you know, for the last couple of weeks. We just got back from Salem, right? Which uh, if you ever get a chance to visit during Halloween, a lot of crowds, but an enormously great time. Right. And I'm working on putting together a video clip thing to put on our YouTube channel to go over all of the highlights so that if you want to go next year, I would recommend checking it out and seeing what it was for us uh, visiting Salem.
1: Yeah, you're definitely never bored, that's for sure. It was, I think, one of our better anniversaries we've spent.
0: I agree. Uh, We usually, we got married on Halloween, so every Halloween we pick a spooky or strange location, and this year was Salem, so a very good choice for both of us. I enjoyed it, and hopefully we'll get a chance to go back. Also, my head is full of switching host providers for the podcast. We were previously on one podcast and we switched over to a new one, which even though we had over 40,000 downloads, over 60 episodes on the other host, the new host is going to provide even more bandwidth and we're going to be doing two shows a week. Monday will be our story day where we'll get stories like today. And Thursday we're going to be interviewing some of the personalities and people that are involved in paranormality. This includes filmmakers, authors, theater troupes, fortune tellers, every type of Anyone who will
1: actually let us talk to them.
0: (laughs) Yes. And in fact, in addition to that, I want to start collecting listeners' stories. So if you're hearing this and you have your own story to tell, maybe you've encountered a ghost or you've seen a Bigfoot or other type of cryptid, maybe you've seen a UFO, this would be your chance to submit your story into us to be played on our Thursday episodes. So check our social media for more information on that. And we are looking for this more bandwidth, giving us more opportunities to tell our stories from within the mist.
1: And actually, if you think your story can be 30 to 40 minutes long, we'll just have a Zoom call and you can be the whole episode.
0: Definitely. I'm, I'm very excited about the opportunities that we have connecting with our guests. Because during Spooky Empire, I wish I had recorded so many of the stories that people had told us at our table. Exactly. And so now this is our chance to start doing that. Now, Goldie Ann. Oh, God. This Halloween marked our fifth year of marriage, and I think now is the time I have something I need to confess. I knew it. I was once kidnapped by a mad scientist who experimented on me. He replaced all of my limbs with animal ones. Okay. And if I ever see him again, I'm going to tear him apart with my bare hands.
1: Oh, dear God. Wow, yeah, that, that's...
0: I'm glad you enjoyed that, Ann. I love seeing you smile. <laughs> as a disclaimer, today's episode involves child experimentation and cannibalism. What the hell? It can get kind of dark today. It touches on a very real condition known as hydrocephalus. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. And with that, we can begin our story. Ohio, Michigan, and Connecticut, they have all been the homes of sightings of strange creatures that were once human, but have devolved into something more monstrous and more terrifying. People have seen them during the late hours within the woods, chewing on the bones of their prey, and they have been chased away, causing them to flee for their very lives. These beings are the result of experimentation of the worst kind. If the stories are true, then it was the United States' own government which sponsored the research and procedures, turning them from human to inhuman. These clandestine experiments were meant to study mental evolution but resulted in creating monsters. The subjects of these experiments? Infants taken from unwanted mental asylums and orphanages across the nation. Eyewitnesses who have sighted the creatures in the woods have described them as being bipedal and resembling smaller and frailer three-foot versions of average people. They possess enormous pinkish-red eyes, a lack of hair, and yellow angular teeth with large gaps between them to indicate spaces where some have gone missing. It is their heads that bears the most obvious differences, as they are obscenely enlarged and misshapen, they resemble watermelons that have taken their names from and are almost too massive for their small bodies. Join us today as we take a walk within the mist to visit the tragic history and frightening lives of the melon heads
1: That's interesting I mean this isn't true, right? I'm going to
0: show you some parts are very true and can be proven. Then from there, you have to decide for yourself what's true and what's just urban legend. Damn. Okay. So this is one of those stories where there's enough truth in it that makes you wonder if the whole thing might be true. And it all begins with Chapter 1, Dr. Crow Comes to Town. The three best origins for the Melonheads comes from Ohio, Michigan, and Connecticut. Although there are variations of the stories, the most supported version comes from the 1930s Kirtland, Ohio, and begins with the arrival of a physician named Dr. Crow, spelled K-R-O-W-E, and his family. Seated less than 25 miles east of downtown Cleveland, Kirtland evokes a quiet, small-town feel but it offers its residents easy access to the large metropolitan areas of the city. With a population today of only 7,000, Kirtland is known for being the early headquarters of the Latter-day Saint movement from 1831 to 1837, and is the site of the movement's first temple, the Kirtland Temple, completed in 1836. Today, as it has been since it was first surveyed in 1796, The town is quiet without much to shock the residents. That would all end with the arrival of Dr. Crow. The entire township had been buzzing with the news of the arrival of the doctor. He was a welcome addition to the small community. He had purchased the large mansion at the far end of town which had sat vacant for far too long. The house was the largest in town and much too big for a family of three. It was also remote from the rest of the community as it sat on a vast number of unused woodlands. The people of Kirtland noticed renovation work being conducted immediately upon his arrival and it was good to know that the old house was being taken care of. The gossip amongst the neighborhoods was that Dr. Crow was a very accomplished physician and military man during World War I, who had retired from his prosperous practice in New England in order to devote his time to the care of his son. The infant suffered from a condition known as hydrocephalus, a medical affliction in which fluid accumulates in the brain, typically in young children. It enlarges the head and often causes brain damage. The crow boy was rarely seen as the family moved in, but it was reported that he was suffering from an enlarged, misshapen head that dwarfed the rest of his very small and frail body. Today, we know of this condition as hydrocephalus. The body typically manufactures cerebrospinal fluid to cushion the brain and spine. Every day, the body produces more with a balance of it being absorbed in an equal amount. When the normal flow or the absorption of fluid is blocked, there is a build-up, creating swelling and enlargement of the skull. For an infant whose cranium has not yet completely fused and possessing soft spots, this can create an enlargement of the head. Even worse, the excess of pressure can prevent proper functioning of the brain, resulting in brain damage and, usually, death. Today, there are treatment options that can restore the normal fluid levels. Though treatment is often helpful, it may take multiple surgeries to treat hydrocephalus. With treatment, many people lead normal and productive lives, but during the 1930s, the condition was not well understood, nor were any of the treatment methods. Dr. Crow had supposedly left his medical practice to devote all of his time to research the medical condition and treat his son. He was working to discover a cure to the affliction. This meant that the family kept to themselves within the mansion and not much was seen of them in Kirtland. Then something even more curious began to occur. The doctor and his wife were bringing in other unwanted children into their home. The residents of the town noticed that many of the children were either mentally ill or abandoned, and they were being taken in by the couple into their large home. It would seem that the kind-hearted doctor was attempting to not only treat his own son, but was striving to better the lives of other orphaned children. This endeared the town to the couple even more, who then decided that it was best to leave them in peace to continue their altruistic endeavors. The mysterious children were never seen outside of the home, but the residents of Kirtland assumed this was due to their medical conditions preventing them from playing outdoors like normal children. The doctor was also unseen, as he was thought to be working night and day, tirelessly striving for some kind of cure to the children, under his care. The only member of the household to ever visit the town was Mrs. Crow, who made frequent trips into Kirtland for shopping and other errands from time to time. She was always seen with a cheerful smile and very pleasant to talk to, but she would be very tight-lipped whenever the subject of the work going on in their home was brought up. The neighbors did notice that her smile seemed to fade a bit, and her eyes grew a little teary whenever the topic turned to the children within the mansion. There was a very good reason for this, as Dr. Crow was hiding a dark secret.
1: It's kind of scary, man. Um, all those children. I mean, you can't, they don't come out and play. They don't see them. I mean, they just thought it was normal.
0: The town assumed it was because they were all suffering from either mental illnesses or medical conditions that prevent them from going outside.
1: Right, but I mean, even in mental hospitals, they let the kids outside.
0: Well, the truth would become discovered in Chapter 2, The Experiments. What was happening within the walls of the Crow Mansion was the stuff of nightmares. Dr. Crow was not the kind-hearted man that the town believed him to be. Instead of striving to help the poor children under his care, he was using them as human subjects of experiments of the most horrible kind. The children he had taken in were being kept in cages as though they were lab animals. Lovely. In fact, it would later be discovered that the child he brought with him and his wife to Kirtland when they first moved in was not even his own son. Oh, crap. It was probably the very first subject to his work.
1: Wow, that's, this is dark.
0: And darker still.
1: I mean, I can start and understand where he's coming from if it's his own child and he wants to figure out what's going on. <laughs> that's not even his own child.
0: No, Dr. Crow did not have any children. So he was probably, like, fired from his jobs. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Because the story gets even darker, as the doctor was not working on a cure for hydrocephalus, but was instead attempting to utilize the medical condition to study brain development. Jesus Christ. (laughs) He was working on seeing if there was improvements to the human intelligence. He was cold-hearted with his years from military life and the war. His experiments ended with him subjecting the children in his care to all manner of horrors that caused permanent harm and damage to their bodies and their psyche. Some of the details of these experiments are quite chilling and very dark. They include drilling holes within their skulls. This would enable the doctor to place electrodes for shocking various portions of the brains for determining responses. Those same openings of the children would also permit him to inject various types of fluids in attempts to enlarge the brain capacity of the developing children. Jesus! On some of the subjects, he performed frontal lobotomies to create a more docile patient, and he worked with electroshock therapy to create the control. These children who did not already suffer medical conditions before were now evolving through his medical process. He studied the effects in order to determine how the brain worked and if the human intellect could be mapped and improved. Jesus Christ, this man
1: needs to die.
0: This mad scientist believed he could create human computers Able to be controlled, but possessing mental functions that would surpass current human intelligence by creating conditions of hydrocephalus. He was taking a medical condition and making it into his own experiments. On some of these children, Dr. Crow would cause conditions resulting in strokes in order to study the process others were inflicted with meningitis to record the disease's effects on the specific parts of the brain. All of these horrors were showing physical changes in the children as their heads began to grow larger and larger and their progression from infancy seemed to stop even though their bodies attempted to keep up. Dietary controls forced their small physical frames while promoting only cerebral growth.
1: Of all the horror movies I've watched and serial killer documentaries and all this other shit, I've never felt as nauseous as I am right now.
0: The disclaimer on this one was very well meant. Why this man would inflict such atrocities on orphaned and mentally ill children was never confirmed, but there are theories that his expertise during World War I may have caught the attention of government agencies looking to create improved soldiers. So as you said, he was not fired. He was actually hired to do
1: this. Mm. this wasn't that's going. the part that we, do we believe or not. Or is that true? Oh, that's the part we don't know.
0: That is the part we don't know.
1: I would say not.
0: Well, this was a time before computers, so human intelligence was often the difference between victory and defeat during the battles. Could doctor Crow have been part of the government experiments looking to create human computers? Or was he possibly working on ways to create means to affect enemy troops mentally? Both theories fit into the manner of his experiments. Either or both could be true. All right, Goldie Ann. Mm -hmm. here's where the truth part plays into this okay these are proven facts all right many people today can believe in a conspiracy that the government would sponsor a monster such as dr crow a proven similar case occurred between 1932 and 1972 known as the tuskegee experiments it was during this time that the government researchers purposely infected syphilis on 600 African American men in Macon County, Alabama, without their informed consent. Oh, Jesus! The men were told that they were being treated for bad blood, a local term used to describe anemia and fatigue. The men were never offered any treatment, although penicillin was the treatment of choice by 1943. Instead. These poor men died, went blind, or experienced other severe health problems due to their untreated syphilis. Also, they spread the disease to their own families, all in the name of government science. It was not until the story of the Tuskegee experiments was leaked to a reporter in July of 1972 that prompted public outrage and forced the unethical study to finally shut down. Jesus, this was the government? This was a government program. <sighs> and it wasn't until President Clinton uh, came into office that a public apology was made to the Tuskegee families for the unethical experiments that was conducted on these people. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's not enough. It honestly wasn't.
1: This is one of those, uh, sorry, just ain't good enough. Sorry, bud.
0: Well, it gets even worse. <laughs> Jeez. In fact, Ohio had its own case of illegal government-sponsored experiments surrounding radioactive isotopes known as the Cincinnati-Ohio radiation experiments. Performed in the 1960s, Eugene L. Sanger, a radiologist, and his team performed unethical tests on over 90 different patients for the purpose of studying the effects on the body and primarily the brain, when exposed to large doses of radiation. The patients were told that the radiation they received was within normal ranges and was being used to treat their various illnesses. These people were later shown to have reduced intelligence, bordering on retardation, who would not even understand the implications of the experiments and the dangers that was being presented to them.
1: Wow.
0: Once the experiments were discovered, Sanger would later testify that his work was funded and approved by the United States Defense Atomic Support Agency under the Department of Defense. Wow. He was told to determine the effects of radiation on the battlefield. These are just two proven cases of government experimentation which might provide enough support to the truth Behind Dr. Crow's story. There is no knowing of how many other unethical experiments may have occurred and never come to light. If such tragedies could be proven true, then it is possible that another similarly evil experiment was ongoing in Kirtland, Ohio, by Dr. Crow.
1: So he might have been among one of the
0: first. It does seem possible that. He was hired by the government and the home was given to him. The experiments was given to him. The patients were given to him by the government. Mm. But for Dr. Crow's experiments, the end was about to come to a tragic and fiery end. Thank God. Chapter 3, The Revolt.
1: Ha ha! Pitchforks! (laughs) Not quite. Oh,
0: damn. The people of Kirtland began to notice less and less of Mrs. Crow coming into town. They had grown accustomed to not seeing the doctor or the children, but it was odd that the friendly woman was absent. On those more and more rare appearances, she seemed more withdrawn and much paler. There was a darkness under her eyes, and the smile was not as cheerful she looked tired and very sad as though the care of so many special needs children was beginning to take a toll on the woman. The town folk offered to help but she would always politely decline and then she would proceed back to the mansion where she would continue her small part in the happening inside.
1: I wonder what her small part was. Well
0: in truth Mrs. Crow provided as much of a mother figure to the caged children within the house as she could. For every evil that her husband inflicted on them, she would provide kindness. Now, it didn't take long before the infants and children viewed her as their mother, their only piece of joy. It was her, even more than the medical methods, that kept them docile and maintained peace within the house. Unfortunately, Mrs. Crow was also growing ill and fatigued. The events in the house were beginning to affect her, and she was beginning to suffer as much as the children did. Although she never stood up to her husband, she could not agree with the manner that the children were being treated. She could not eat. She could not sleep. And her mind was plagued with guilt and remorse. It was not long before that despair led her to fainting late one night and falling down the stairway into the basement where the children and the experiments were. As she came to a stop at the bottom of the darkened stairway, it was evident that she was dead.
1: Oh, great, right in front of the children.
0: Her body was crumpled just before the cages of the trapped children. These poor Suffering souls called out to her in nonsensical cries, but the woman did not move. Their pleas became more and more desperate, and then angry. The only happiness in their lives was now snuffed out, and they could bear the suffering no more. Either with an intelligence that they have never shown before, or a primal rage that could not be stopped, The children broke free from their cages. Dr. Crow had just come to the top of the stairway as they made their escape. He was shocked seeing his wife's corpse at the bottom of the stairway and the mutated children around her. They must have looked up at him and their hatred boiled over. The mutated children raced upward after him with their tiny bodies and enlarged heads. With years of pent-up emotions and experimentations, these children killed Dr. Crow, ripping him apart. The attack was so savage that a lantern was knocked down the wooden stairway to engulf the entire laboratory in flames within moments.
1: Okay, so who's left to tell the story?
0: This was all pieced together by the people after the fact. Okay. For the Melonhead children, they panicked and ran from the flames and the only home they ever knew into the woods behind the house. Remember, the mansion was far remote from the rest of the town, and it was never known how many escaped. But those that did gathered into a feral pack and watched from the darkness as the home of Dr. Crow and the place of their torment burned to the ground. They then proceeded to make their way deeper into the woods to create their own family, untrusting of people, but finding their own way to survive off the land, and inbreeding to create future generations of either farther mutations.
1: Okay, this seems like the start of a horror story. I don't know what to believe, what not to believe. There is a (laughs) mixture of
0: both. And here's where it's going to get even murkier for you. Okay. Chapter 4, The Variations There appears to be some reported accuracies to the story surrounding Dr. Crow. The West, Geauga Sun, had published an article in their newspaper about a man named Dr. Crow, who lived in the Kirtland area during World War II, and he had been a research scientist. Even the fact that he had been involved in conducting human trials with medical equipment for research was verified by the newspaper. Since nothing more was published about him or his work, it could never be proven what type of experiments and on what patients was ever proven beyond the stories passed down through the urban legends. Strangely, all other documentation on the man disappeared. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you can believe that the government that sponsored his experiments buried all proof of a man's existence.
1: Which, I mean, this whole episode sounds like one big conspiracy theory.
0: <laughs> well, what's even more curious is the fact that the legend of the melon Heads has also been found in other locations beyond Ohio, with origins similar and supporting one another. It is possible that these experiments were occurring in more than just one location. Sightings of similar creatures exist in the state of Michigan, where they are also referred to as wobbleheads. Residents in Allegan County, Michigan, tell that during the 1940s, a mental facility called the Junction Insane Asylum took care of patients of the Ottawa County. Now, factually, Investigations show that there was never a junction insane asylum, but there was a Sagatok Dunes Correctional Facility in that area. That may have been confused for the asylum. The junction name might have been because the prison's location is at the highway junction near the borders of the Ottawa County. so if the Sagatok Dunes Correctional Facility might have actually been the Junction Asane Asylum, Okay. The second confirming detail is that the correctional facility was involved in housing mental patients as well as those deemed criminally insane and unfit for society. It is very possible that this was the true home to the evil experiments in Michigan. In this variation to the Melonhead's legend, the illegal human experiments were conducted within the asylum on children already suffering mental illnesses. These unethical procedures were what created the enlarged hydrocephalus so that the researchers could study the cause and attempt to create a cure or treatment. Some of these experiments involved radiation injections in attempts to determine if radioactive isotopes could be utilized to improve human intelligence as the children were developing.
1: Hmm. Another government... Radiation problem? According to the legends, yes.
0: Similar to the tale in Ohio, these affected children broke free from the asylum after ripping one of the research scientists to shreds and taking pieces of his body for food into the nearby woods. That
1: sounds familiar.
0: (laughs) Well, these feral melon heads moved like a pack of wild animals until they came upon the Felt Mansion which was a large estate constructed by Dorr Felt in 1928. The home was a seasonal homestead for Dorr and his wife, but had been sold to a Catholic church to be refurbished into a Catholic seminary. The period in between both of these is when the Wobbleheads made their first stop. Bones of the researchers was left behind after feeding. Even modern locals tell how the melonheads still roam the Allegan County woods, hiding within an underground series of tunnels. So now you have Ohio and Michigan having similar experimentation stories releasing melonheads into the woods. Mm. To make matters even more bizarre, there is yet another similar version of the melonhead story from the state of Connecticut.
1: So I guess this was just the experimental stomping ground of the... U.S. government.
0: For brain activity, yes. (laughs) Connecticut does have a little bit of a difference because there's three different origin stories for them. The first says that the Melonheads were created by a large family that moved to the country around 1900 from Bavaria, Germany. According to this version of this story, they were an inbred family who moved to escape persecution, and they kind of got sent out to the woods and banned from the rest of society. Okay. Another one says that they were a family that was accused by of witchcraft and they were banished into the wilderness, where they survived and inbred and mutated the generations into the melon heads. However, it's the third origin that I want to focus on. Because it says that it resembles the legend of Ohio and Michigan, and that these Melonheads escaped from Fairfield Hills Hospital, which is a now abandoned mental institution. They specialize in inmates with mental health problems. Both are in Newtown, Connecticut. The building supposedly burned and some of the inmates escaped and turned to cannibalisms, which caused their heads to swell. Now, The same type of creatures roam the area, and especially an area known to the locals as Dracula Drive. Oh, well, that's fitting. All three states focus on the same description of the creatures with shriveled bodies and enormous wobbling heads. Could experimentation on children and hydrocephalus be conducted in three different locations? And if so, what if there's more? Each state shares similar backstories with their creatures still roaming the darkness of the woods to be seen time and time again. Many of the modern stories of sightings of the melonheads are told from a a a friend-of-a-friend-of-a-friend type attitude. Most detail traveling into the woods at night and stopping at the side of the road on a dare to encounter the large-headed feral people within. Suddenly, according to the story, the witnesses would see one of the pale creatures in the road bathed in their headlights. It would be gnawing on the bones of some long-dead animal, possibly roadkill from a previous car passing by. The creature is small and dressed in rags, but has an enormous head which should be too large for it to carry. Without warning, the melonhead begins to race towards the car with its mouth open, showing jagged, sharp teeth and fierce pink eyes. The stories of encounters then ends with the eyewitnesses being chased away as the cannibalistic melonhead pursues them to feast on their flesh. <laughs> okay. The lucky survivors then tell how they were able to drive off, swearing that they will never go back into those woods at night Ever again. I did want to specify one particular story that I found very interesting. Okay. It is one of the best known and fascinating eyewitness encounters, and it involves traveling down the infamous Dracula Drive. It is told that if you ever travel the back roads, you might see an old blue Ford Granada barreling down the empty road. At the wheel of this car, a creature known as a melonhead. According to the story, back in the 1980s, a group of girls from Notre Dame High School in Fairfield decided to go out joyriding after a Friday night football game. Their names, Megan, Sue, Kim, Deb, Jen, and Karen. They were just a typical group of teenagers looking for a harmless scare. So they got into Deb's blue granada and set off into the dark night. After driving around for a while, they decided to go someplace spooky, Velvet Street in the neighboring Trumbull. The locals had given Velvet Street the nickname of Dracula Drive because of the strange things that supposedly happened there. It was perfect for their purpose. Megan told her friends that the strangest of all these legends are little monstrous humanoids with huge heads were said to live in the woods surrounding Dracula Drive. The creatures were supposedly cannibals who would capture and eat any animal or person they find there. The girls all laughed at the idea and decided on a dare to try and find these creatures. The girls drove down Dracula Drive and parked the car on the side of the road. They left the headlights on and teased one another challenging them to step out of the car and into the cool autumn air. Soon, all of them were standing on the road and daring one another to move farther and farther away from the safety of the car. The woods were very still and very, very dark. Other than the headlights, there was no illumination. No street lights, No houses nestled amongst the trees. The girls were alone in the nighttime woods. Laughing with nervous energy, they started to walk down the road, hoping yet fearful of seeing the monsters who supposedly lived in the woods. After walking a couple hundred feet, they heard their car door open and slam behind them. The girls all turned back towards the sound of the engine starting and the car barreling down the road towards them. Someone had stolen Deb's car. The girls jumped off the road and into the woods to avoid the car running them over. As it charged towards them, the thieves were illuminated by the car's interior light. The teenage girls saw that the thieves were the size of children with disproportionately large heads and clad in dirty rags. Their eyes glowed with orange light, and they cackled wildly as they drove past the girls. The taillights disappeared into the distance.
1: How'd they reach the pedals?
0: I'm wondering how they learned to drive. (laughs) It's not like someone is out there in the forests of Dracula Drive teaching monster inbred creatures how to drive a car, but... That's what happened in this story. All righty then. Now, for Megan and her friends, they found what they were looking for. They found the melon heads. But they were left on the dark road within an even darker forest, forced to make their way back with their fantastic story. And that is the story of the blue Granada and the melon heads. (laughs) That's stupid. (laughs) It's a popular story, though. And supposedly they're still driving it today. All right. Maybe their legs got a little longer. Or they found a way to drive a car that had to have run out of gas by now. True. Chapter 6, From Melongian Project to Beyond the Stars to a Demon. What? Well, now I want to talk about some of the theories that I have regarding melon heads. Okay. The theories go beyond just assuming that the stories of melonheads are fake. So if we pretend for now that the stories are actually true, the theories are as varied as the tales themselves. The first theory can date as far back as 1660s, when slaves of African descent would intermingle with European women across the northern states, creating mixed children, which are now known today as Melongians. That's melonheads? Well, let me continue. Okay. According to legal doctrines, if a woman of the time was deemed a citizen of the colonies, her children would be considered full citizens as well. But if the woman was a slave, that status would pass on to her children, making them non-citizens. So African slaves having children with European citizen women made their children citizens and not slaves. However, the interracial families, more than 200 of them, still faced a large amount of discrimination and hatred that caused them to move within the wilderness of the Appalachian Mountains. The discrimination prevented them from having normal integrations into the society, so many of the families began inbreeding. One of the more common birth effects caused by this inbreeding was hydrocephaly and deaths before their first birthday. So it is possible that Melungian has been shortened to melon and those people were given a slur melon heads during the 1700s. Animosity towards the mixed races and inbreeding could very well give the spark to the rest of the future unsupported legends of cannibalisms. And monsters.
1: I well, you know you think about it. We keep calling it inbreeding because, you know, we're, we, we just know it's bad. But think about back then. I mean, there weren't the same laws of, I mean, even some of the historical societies married within their own families. Royalty definitely did. So, I mean, it hasn't been, back then, it wasn't looked upon as being bad. It was just normal
0: but they didn't understand the health risks that were involved right. to the exactly can practice. practice. But I and mean,
1: I'm sitting here thinking as you're talking about these backwoods inbreed people, but they really weren't that back then because it wasn't wrong in society back then.
0: But over the years, it, the hatred because of them being mixed race well, yeah, and that the part, inbreeding yes. definitely created animosity. But if the Melonheads aren't Menlongians, what if the Melonheads didn't even come from inbreeding, but from beyond the stars? Oh, here we go. Considering the description of the Melonheads and their ability to survive in the woods, many cryptid enthusiasts associate the creatures with sightings of unidentified flying objects and the descriptions of the alien greys. Melonheads are reported as standing between three to four feet in height, having a large bulbous head, which exceeds that of a human head, while possessing a much smaller body. Although not a very detailed description, eyewitness sightings of greys also describes them as standing three to four feet in height and having a large, bulbous, egg-shaped head. True, true. Could these sightings have occurred deeper within the wilderness, where the creatures are often caught away from their spacecraft? causing them to attack the witnesses that travel far too close. Many of the areas associated as being hotspots for melonhead sightings also appear to be hot spots for sightings of UFOs and other seemingly supernatural occurrences. The missing people that are said to have been cannibalized and eaten by melonheads may well have been abductees rather than meals. So could Melon Heads actually be alien greys that are just caught away from their spacecraft and given a more terrestrial origin story? Right. Could be. Could be. Well, if you don't like that theory, here is my very own original theory. Your theory. Yes. The Gary Brand theory. Well, the last possibility is because I couldn't find anything on it, but I found this to be very interesting. Oh, I know where you're going. Okay, this is the connection of the description of the mellowheads to another cryptid we have talked about before on this podcast, the Dover Demon.
1: Yeah, it looks like they do look like Dover
0: Demon, don't they? Yes. For those of you who may not have listened to that episode, which I highly recommend you go do, during a week in April of 1977, three different eyewitnesses reported seeing a creature roaming the darkness of Dover, Massachusetts. Proof of its existence
1: or the identity of it still remains unknown to this day. Okay, so from this point, the Dover Demon could be a melon head or a melon head could be a Dover Demon. (laughs) Which came first, the demon or the Dover?
0: Or the egg or the egghead. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the Dover Demon was described as a small humanoid looking sort of like the gray variety of aliens, except that it has a rosy tan colored skin. So, more of a human uh, human type uh, coloration. The creature had a large head on a small stick-like body. It could be bipedal, but it often travels on all fours or switches back and forth between the two modes of locomotion. It has eyes that glow, usually orange or sometimes green. This description of the Dover demon and the eyewitness accounts are very similar to the melonhead's. Both encounters can be found in New England, making the coincidences even more striking. Like you said, Goldie Ann, could the Dover Demon have been an extension of the Melonheads? Is this what the Melonheads have evolved to, the Dover Demon? Or are the Melonheads in Ohio and Michigan Dover Demons of a different species? Cool. Cool. And like I said, I could not find anything that supported this argument. It's just something that I made a connection to and thought it was kind of interesting.
1: Well, yeah, it's kind of weird that no one else has made that connection, though, because they do look like Dover demons. And it would help support
0: the stories of either one. Mm-hmm. Chapter 7, Popular Culture. The Legend of the Melonheads remains mostly campfire stories in order to scare each other in the dark. There have been a couple of documentaries, but nothing very serious. However, I did find one melonhead who has grown to become one of the most famous horror movie icons of all time. Jason. Absolutely. Jason Voorhees of the Friday the 13th franchise is actually a melonhead. According to the backstory from the Friday the 13th movies, Jason Voorhees was born in the small town of Crystal Lake, New Jersey, on June 13, 1946 to Elias Voorhees and Pamela Voorhees, fitting the timeline of the other Melonhead experiments and their origins. (laughs) Jason was afflicted with severe facial deformities, hydrocephalus, and an abnormally large head with mental disabilities. Raising Jason on her own, Pamela kept her son isolated from the community, not letting him attend school and educating him in their home on the outskirts of Crystal Lake. This bond between mother and son is as strong and similar to that of Mrs. Crow and the children of Kirtland, Ohio. After supposedly drowning, Jason has gone on to don his infamous hockey mask and has been killing ever since. He possesses supernatural powers like those Dr. Crow was attempting to create in his own experiments. So the next time you watch Jason within the Friday the 13th movies, you may be watching a melonhead seeking revenge for his creation.
1: Hmm. So you're talking about the, uh, I can't think of her name, the the actual actress. Who played uh, Pamela Voorhees? Yeah. Yeah, in an interview she I can't think of her name, but... I wonder if she based it off of all of that.
0: It's hard to say. Like I said, these are popular legends, but no one ever has a definitive version of them. I put together a bunch of different pieces into one continuous story, but the version that I gave of Dr. Crow is actually found in like four or five different versions. So there is no one set story. Which is why it's hard to know know what's what's true and what's not.
1: Um, Yeah, this is very disturbing. (laughs) But I mean, the longer it went on, the more I was able to take that, okay, this probably didn't actually happen. But could you imagine if it did? Those children being subjected to all of that? That just kills me.
0: And I think that's the purpose of the story is that it tugs on the heartstrings where you feel sympathy for the children, but then you also feel terror at what they've become.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the ending, of course, being the avid horror movie watcher that I am, I do like how you tied Jason in there. Pretty well done.
0: Thank you. (laughs) I kind of thought it was neat. And I kind of pictured him as what if he was one of a crow like experiment. True. It never really shows much of his childhood. So you never know. Maybe, uh, He was one of the children, and Pamela Voorhees rescued him from crows' experiments. Who knows? Altogether, the concept of illegal government experimentation to increase intelligence is supported, whether it be in Connecticut, Michigan, or Ohio. That much is proven. There is enough proof of people being subjected to unethical experiments to make you pause when considering the legend of the Melonheads. Where people travel into the dark forests, do they find cannibalistic inbreeds that have been formed their own feral society over the past decades? Are these devolved monsters living on the land waiting to attack people and steal cars? (laughs) Regardless, they make for very scary and thought-provoking legends. I hope you enjoyed our story and please remember we are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about the melon heads. Do you think they were results of Dr. Crow's experiments and are they still roaming the woods of Ohio, Michigan, or Connecticut? Have you seen one? Please share your stories with us. You can reach us on our Facebook page Within the Mist Podcast as we are also on Instagram and Twitter plus we have an email at within the miss podcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share. We really hope you enjoyed our story about the Melonheads and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, look closely at that car driving past you on the roads, for a melon head may be at the wheel. And remain constantly curious. Goodbye everybody.
1: See you next time guys.